As you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is constantly in controversy with the religious leaders of his day. It's interesting, Jesus was a Jew. And all of these sects that existed in that day also claimed to be Jews. You know, you had the Pharisees, you had the scribes, you had the Herodians, you had the Essenes, you had the Sadducees, you had all these different denominations in the days of Christ. And Christ was a Jew, and he was always in conflict, in controversy with them. You can hardly turn one page in the Gospels without finding Jesus in some controversy with these religious leaders, particularly. And as we studied in one of our previous lectures, the whole controversy revolved around the issue of whether the law should be written on tablets of stone and you should try and measure up, or whether the law should be written on the heart in such a way that you naturally do, automatically do what the law requires. In other words, the whole controversy had to do with the law written on tables of stone or the law written on the tablets of the heart. And this is what Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 is speaking about. Let's read it again. Here Jesus speaks and he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, notice that Jesus does not require less, Jesus requires what? More. Does he require at least as much? as what the Pharisees were giving. Does God expect a different exterior? Does God expect a change? Does he expect better fruits in our lives? Yes, Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. But these things need to be produced by an internal motivation rather than imposed by a law written on tablets of stone. And so Jesus says here, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus is going to amplify what he's talking about. First of all, as we've studied, he deals with the commandment that speaks about murder. Now for the Pharisees, murder was to kill somebody physically. It was the act of murder. But Jesus says, no, murder is deeper than that. Murder begins in the heart. So if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder, even if you have not committed the act. Then Jesus goes a little bit further down, and he speaks about the seventh commandment. And in a moment, we're going to return to this commandment. We're going to go to another chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus speaks about the commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. When he speaks, the Pharisees are very happy because they say, We've never slept with any woman other than our own wives. So we're doing all right. But then Jesus says, Whoever looks upon a woman to covet her or to desire her has already committed adultery in his heart. So notice that Jesus goes beyond the external act. He goes beyond just what we do outside, and he says that unless our motivations for doing are internal, unless the heart moves us to do it, it's worthless in the sight of God because it's legalism. It's trying to earn salvation. So what Jesus wanted was to have people live a religion of the heart to live the commandments because the motivation came from inside rather than imposed by a law from outside. Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying and what I'm saying is making sense to you. We've studied it before. We had a whole lecture on what Jesus had to say about the rule of law. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to amplify this aspect of the seventh commandment. Here Jesus is going to deal with the seventh commandment of the law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he's going to amplify what we've already noticed in Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him. Notice who was the controversy with again? Same Pharisees that we read about in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, once again, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, notice, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You understand the question? Does this have to do with family values? It most certainly does, because it's speaking about marriage. And so their question is, 
Can you get a divorce for any reason? Is it lawful to get a divorce for any reason in the sight of God? Now, I want you to notice what Jesus answers in verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? Where does Jesus direct them to? He does not direct them to the rabbis or to the traditions of the elders. He directs them where? To the written word of God. And notice he continues saying, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, who is that who made them at the beginning? God. But particularly there's three persons in the Godhead. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which one was the active agent in creation according to what we've studied? It was Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, just reviewing, it says in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, in the beginning, notice, in the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning was the Word who is God, and then it says, for through Him all things were created. Three elements in this passage. Number one, in the beginning, Number two, the Word who is God, and number three, He created. Now doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1? We have the same three elements. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So who was the Creator according to Scripture? It was none other than Jesus Christ who established marriage at the beginning. So notice once again verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Who made the gender differences? So is it God's plan that human beings blur the gender differences? Absolutely not. Is it acceptable for uh, individuals to form homosexual marriages or lesbian marriages? Not if you go by what the Word of God says. Now let me say, we need to love the homosexual without loving his homosexuality. And we must love the lesbian without loving her lesbianism. Isn't that right? We need to love the sinner, but we can never love the sin. And in fact, when we speak to people, we have to speak to them the truth in love because we want them to be saved in the kingdom of Christ. And so he says... He who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said. Now this is interesting because when you go back to Genesis you discover something very peculiar. The words that were given at the marriage ceremony in Genesis are simply written as if they were by Moses. Now let's go back there, back back to Genesis so that you can see the point that I'm trying to make. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. It gives the impression that either Moses is writing this, or perhaps even Adam is speaking this. But we're going to notice in a minute that the one who spoke these words was Jesus himself. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now who said those words? In Genesis it's just written as if Moses is writing it, or maybe Adam is speaking these words. But what does it say in Matthew? Verse 4 again, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, who said? The one who made them at the beginning, right? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the words that we use in the marriage ceremony were first used by Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 6, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Question, where does Jesus go for his authority? The word of God. And what is the ideal according to Jesus? The ideal that existed when? At creation in the beginning. Don't forget that. Now we're going to notice in the next verse that the Jewish nation and the Pharisees had 
twisted the meaning of marriage. In fact, they had ruined, to a great extent, the precious, beautiful meaning of marriage. And so they asked Jesus in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, where Moses allowed them to get divorced practically for any reason. But what was the reason? Was it acceptable on the part of God? Did God establish that legislation? Was it his original plan? Absolutely not. He says in verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. What does that mean, the hardness of your hearts? Have we studied about hard hearts before in this seminar? What does a hard heart represent? A heart of someone who is unconverted. A person who has a heart of stone. A heart that has not been touched by the Holy Spirit. We've studied all of these things. So Jesus is saying it was because you were unconverted. Because you had the law written on tablets of stone, but not on your heart, that you demanded the ability to divorce for any reason. But then where does Jesus take them? Verse 8 again, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So according to Jesus, where do we need to go for the pattern of marriage? We must go to the beginning and we must depend upon the holy word of God. Who had twisted the meaning of marriage? The Jewish nation and particularly the Pharisees in Christ's day. So the controversy is between the word of God given at the beginning and what Moses allowed because of the hardness of heart of the people. But Jesus says the pattern, the ideal, is to go back to the beginning to see what God's original plan is. That's plan A. That's where God wants us to be. Is that point clear? Of course, the disciples then say, well, if that's the case, it's better for a person not to get married. But let me tell you something. It's better, rather, to be sure who you're marrying when you get married. Because if you're not sure who you're getting married to, it will end in divorce. And then you'll be disobeying what the Lord has to say here in Matthew chapter 19. The two points that I want to underline in this passage is, number one, Jesus got his authority from where? From the word of God. And he said that the ideal that we need to follow is where? Where? When? In the beginning. Not the traditions that were allowed because of the hardness of heart, but God's original plan at creation. Now let's go to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, to another controversial situation of Jesus with these religious leaders. It's always usually, I shouldn't say always, it's usually with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now notice Mark chapter 7, and we're going to go through the first 13 verses of this chapter. And Jesus is going to deal here with restoring the fifth commandment. Did Jesus restore the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. Yes? To its original meaning? Yes. Did Christ reestablish the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Did he reestablish the meaning of marriage, going back to the beginning, and quoting the word of God? Yes. Now he's going to restore the meaning of the fifth commandment, because that also had been twisted out of shape by the scribes and the Pharisees. Is Jesus getting rid of the law? No. What is Jesus doing? He's restoring the law to its true and proper meaning. Is that point clear in your mind? Now notice Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. The controversy is going to have to do with ceremonial washings. It says there in verse 1, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Notice once again who are the ones that are going to enter in controversy with Jesus? The Pharisees and the scribes. It says in verse 2, Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
Now, this passage has nothing to do with hygiene, folks. We are supposed to wash our hands before we eat. This is referring to ceremonial washings, which the Pharisees and the scribes did many, many times during the day because they thought that they were getting rid of their religious and spiritual defilement by doing it. It doesn't have anything to do with physical defilement and physical cleansing. They thought they were cleansing their spiritual nature by doing these things. That will become clear in a minute. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way holding the tradition of the elders. Now I need to stop there. What is this thing of the tradition of the elders? We're going to notice in this passage that there are several technical terms, theological terms, which we need to understand in order to comprehend what's going on here. One of those technical terms is the tradition of the elders. Another one is holding. Another one is which ye have received. Now this is interesting terminology. You hold what you have received. It even speaks there about transmitting what you have passed on. It says a little bit later on. So this is a tradition of the elders which has been received and which is passed on. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 23, and I want you to notice something very interesting about this idea of the tradition of the elders. And Once again, it's speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees, the same group. Notice verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in what? In Moses' seat. Now, from Jewish sources, we know that this idea of sitting on Moses' seat meant to the Jewish leaders that they had the authority of Moses to teach. Actually, the Greek word that is used here for, for seat is the word cathedra. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees, they claimed to have the right to speak ex cathedra. The word cathedral means from the throne. You see, the Jewish nation believed that there were certain traditions, oral traditions, that God gave to Moses which were not committed to writing. And they believed that these traditions which were given orally to Moses, which Moses never wrote in his books, were handed down from generation to generation by an unbroken succession of elders. In other words, these elders preserved the oral traditions all the way from the time of Moses till the time of Jesus. So when they were teaching from Moses' seat, they were teaching the oral traditions that Moses had taught, but which were not committed to writing. Very interesting concept. The concept that they were teaching oral traditions that Moses had taught, but which weren't written. How do we know that Moses taught them if they're not written? How do we know when these traditions contradict what is written in the word, what do you stay with? The oral traditions taught from the cathedral of Moses, or do you go with what scripture says? I heard you say scripture. But you see, there's this idea of succession. There's this deposit of the faith, which Moses received by oral tradition. This was passed on from generation to generation to the elders, to the elders of the next generation, to the elders of the next generation, in unbroken succession until the day when Jesus comes to this earth. And they believe that these words were as authoritative, this oral tradition was as authoritative and as important and as trustworthy as the written word of God. And of course, these washings were part of those traditions. Notice, once again, Mark chapter 7, and let's read once again, starting with verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, speaking about the Jews, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, they do not eat unless they wash. But this is only the tip of the iceberg, this tradition that Jesus is talking about here. There's much more. He, he says, I'm just giving you one example. Because then he says, and many other things which they have what? Received from where? 
from tradition, from the elders, and those elders from the previous elders, supposedly an unbroken succession all the way back to Moses. So it says, and there are many other things which they have received, and what? And hold. Like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Why don't your disciples wash ceremonially, like Moses said orally, and like all of our leaders in unbroken succession have taught since the days of Moses? And Jesus immediately is going to go where to get his authority? Is he going to say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said such and such? Well, Rabbi such and such said so and so? Absolutely not. Jesus immediately, when he confronts them, he goes where? To the written word of God, folks. The only thing that we can trust is the written word of God. Because oral tradition soon becomes corrupted in the process of transmission. Now notice verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. Notice this. This people honors me with their lips. In other words, they talk the talk. But their what? Their heart is far from me. What kind of disease do they have? They've got heart problems. Have we seen that before? Of course we have. They have they're going to have a spiritual heart attack, is what Jesus is, is saying. Remember that we read in Matthew 19 that Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed this, but at the beginning it was not so, and Jesus uses scripture to show that it was not like that at the beginning. Now once again, Jesus goes to scripture, and he says, this people with their lips honor me but their heart is far from me. In other words, the outside is beautiful and wonderful, but the inside is corrupt. And now notice verse 7, the middle of the verse. And in vain, what does in vain mean? The word vain. It means empty. Something that is empty. Something that has no essence. Something that has no meaning. And so he says, in vain they worship me. What happens when you follow tradition instead of following the word of God? You worship God what? In vain, according to Jesus. In other words, your worship is useless when you follow tradition instead of the word. And so he says, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of what? Men, did Jesus accept the idea that those oral traditions were divinely inspired? No. Did Jesus recognize that we're supposed to follow oral tradition because it has been handed down from the beginning, from Moses, all the way down to the people of his day and age? Absolutely not. He says these doctrines are commandments of what? Of men. And if you follow those commandments of men, you are worship me, worshiping me how? in vain. And then notice verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, what commandment is he talking about when he says laying aside the commandment of God? He's speaking about one of the Ten Commandments. We're going to notice in a minute. He's speaking about the commandment that says honor your father and your mother. So I want you to notice that in this passage Jesus is saying that tradition annuls one of the Ten Commandments. Tradition is in rivalry with one of God's Ten Commandments. So when you accept tradition, you're making of none effect the commandments of God. Notice once again, verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold, what? The tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Their traditions touch every aspect of life because he continues saying, and many other such things you do. In other words, regarding the other commandments, you do the same thing. And now Jesus is going to refer to which commandment he was talking about. Notice verse 9. 
And he said to them, All too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, where does Jesus go again? He goes to written scripture. I challenge you to bring me one verse in the Gospels where Jesus ever quoted a rabbi. Or ever quoted tradition. Not once. He always quoted written scripture. By this Jesus is saying that it is written scripture which has unquestionable authority. In fact, Jesus constantly challenged oral tradition because it contradicted the word of God. And so in verse 10, he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. What commandment is that? Number five. Does that have anything to do with family values? <laughs> of course. It doesn't deal with the relationship between husband and wife. It deals with the relationship between children and parents. And so verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. And when Jesus says these words, they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're doing all right. We've never cursed our parents. Oh, but what Jesus is going to say is going to make them shake. Notice verse 11. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is dedicated to the temple, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Now let me explain what Corban was. The word Corban means dedicated. And one of the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees allowed the children to do the following. Children that were well-to-do, they'd gotten ahead in life. Basically what they could do, they could say, everything that I own and everything that I enjoy, I dedicate to the temple. It is Corban. But all during the rest of their lives, they could use whatever they wanted, they could enjoy it to the fullest, and then when they died, it was property of the temple. And you know what some kids did? They used this as an excuse when the parents had great need and the parents said, son, help me, mother. The mother said, daughter, help me. They would say, I can't. Everything I own is Corban. Are you understanding what I'm saying? In other words, I can't help you because it's been dedicated to the temple. Have mercy. So this tradition, what was it doing with the fifth commandment of the law of God? It was obliterating the commandment, the written commandment of God. And of course, Jesus was indignant. I'm indignant right now. And I'm living 2,000 years later. Are you indignant? I mean, this tradition, what it does is it obliterates the commandment of God that says, honor your father and your mother. Is Jesus doing away with the commandment that says, honor your father and your mother? No. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is exalting the commandment. He's placing it in the high position that it should occupy. He's restoring the commandment to its proper meaning. But he's not doing away with it. What he's doing away with is their petty, ridiculous traditions which make of no effect the commandment of God. Just like he did with marriage, he also did with the commandment that says, Honor your father and your mother. And then he concludes in verse 13, by saying, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have what? There's another one of those words. Which you have handed down, and then for the third time, he says, and many such things you do. Are you understanding the controversy that Jesus had with these people? What are they doing? They're putting tradition in place of what? In place of the word of God. In place of the commandment of God. And by doing that, they are annulling and destroying the meaning of the commandment of God. And the force of the commandment of God. Is that clear in your mind? Now I would like to go to another example. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and verse 23. And before we start reading there, I want to make something absolutely clear. I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. And so I'm going to ask you the question. 
Did Jesus do away with the seventh commandment? Did Jesus change the seventh commandment? Did Jesus do away with the fifth commandment? Did Jesus change the fifth commandment? Did Jesus do away with the sixth commandment that says thou shalt not kill? No. Did he exalt it and make it even more applicable and more powerful? He most certainly did. Now we're going to take a look at another commandment that Jesus had constant controversies over. Verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Is that one of the commandments of God? It is? The Sabbath? Is that one of God's commandments? Oh, but Jesus did away with that, didn't he? How come you say no? We haven't even studied it yet. So they're going through a grain field on the Sabbath, and I want you to notice some interesting things here. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Now let me tell you that the scribes and Pharisees had four laws that made the disciples great sinners in their sight. Number one, by plucking the grain, they were falling into the grave sin of reaping on the Sabbath. Of course, they weren't really reaping. They were just getting some food on Sabbath. I mean, they weren't going out in their combine to harvest their fields. They were getting a meal. Of course, they didn't have combines back there. I know that. A second sin that they were committing in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees, because they had traditions which forbade this, was that if you read Luke chapter 6 and verse 1, which we won't go there, it's on your list, you'll find that it says that they took the grain and they rubbed it in their hands. Now, that is the sin of threshing. You see, they've harvested, they're guilty of reaping, now they're guilty of threshing, but now if they threshed, you need to know also that at some point they must have blown away the chaff. And so now they're committing the sin of winnowing. And then the fourth sin is by this whole process they prepared a meal on the Sabbath and so they've broken four of the rabbinical laws that come as a result of tradition. Were they breaking the Bible commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? No. What were they breaking? They were breaking the laws and commandments of the Pharisees, not the commandment of God. And then it says in verse 24, and the Pharisees said to him, by the way, in case you're wondering whether this was robbery, <laughs> they were stealing grain. No, the law allowed people to take enough grain for a meal if they were hungry. So the problem with thou shalt not steal doesn't apply here. I thought maybe somebody might come up with that question. I'll save Elder Finn a question. Verse 24, and the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? By whose definition? Theirs. This is not the Sabbath of the Lord. This is the Sabbath of the Pharisees. It is their law. It is their tradition. Just like Corban was their tradition. Just like divorce was their tradition. So by their definition, the disciples have broken the law. They would rather have the disciples suffer and be hungry on the Sabbath. Verse 25, but he said to them, have you never read that David, what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except to the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Where is Jesus going once again to defend what his disciples are doing? He goes once again to Scripture to show that their own Scriptures prove them wrong. And then I want you to notice the tremendous conclusion that we have here in verse 27. Not only does Jesus go to Scripture, but now he's going to take us back where? To the beginning as the original intent and meaning of this commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Notice verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Let's stop there for a moment. 
The Sabbath was made for whom? I thought it was for the Jews. Jesus could have said the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He could have said the Sabbath was made for Israel. But he's saying the Sabbath was made for man, which is a generic term. He's saying that the Sabbath was made for humanity. Now my question is, where and when and who made the Sabbath? Where does Jesus send us? Oh, have mercy. He sends us again where? Back to the beginning. As the ideal of Sabbath observance. Does Jesus do away with the Sabbath? No. What is he going to do? He's going to say, your traditions contradict the meaning of the Sabbath. Because in the beginning, it was not so. And so where do you suppose we need to go to understand the true meaning of the Sabbath? Well, Jesus himself says the Sabbath was made for man, so he sends us back to Genesis. So do you suppose it might be a good idea to go back to Genesis? That's where Jesus sends us. He says, if you want to know what the Sabbath, what it means, then let's go back to Genesis. Incidentally, let me ask you, how many Jews were there back in Genesis? How many? Was Adam a Jew? Nice try. The word Jew comes from Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And Jacob lived in the second millennium B.C. Long after sin, long after creation. In other words, Adam was not a Jew. That's why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for whom? For man. If he'd say for Israel, that would take us only till the time of Abraham. But Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. He's transcending Abraham and he's taking us back where? To the very beginning. And so we need to go to the beginning to understand the Sabbath. Now let me just review basically how the Sabbath is related to family values. Because let me say, folks, these are the two great creation institutions. Both were made at the same time. Somebody might say, but pastor, isn't the Sabbath... A sign of the rest that we get when Jesus redeems us from sin? That is a secondary meaning of the Sabbath. But you see, when the Sabbath was made, originally there was no sin. The Sabbath was made for man before sin. And so the Sabbath in its original meaning, its creation meaning, has nothing to do with sin and rest in Jesus Christ after sin. It's part of God's original plan. Let me ask you, was it part of God's original plan that children honor their father and their mother? Was it part of God's original plan that man and woman should not kill? Was it part of God's original plan that human beings should not steal? Was it part of God's original plan that human beings should not commit adultery? We just noticed it. What was the intent of the Sabbath originally? Listen, I find it ironic that some Christians, and I speak with you clearly, let me, let me just say I don't want to offend anybody here tonight, but when I became a minister, I promised the Lord that I would speak the truth. And I speak it because I love you. You say, well, you don't love me so much because you speak strong. Well, that's love. See, the definition people give of love today is, is you know, that uh, gushy-washy feeling of just hugging. Oh, let's all get along. Doesn't matter what we believe. Doesn't matter what we do. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? I'm not planning to go to hell. (laughs) I'm planning to go to heaven. And the way to heaven is through the word of God. Now, we need to go back to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis just for a moment. As you read the story of creation, you discover that God created things The first six days, he created the world and everything in it. Created light, the firmament, dry land, trees, flowers, sun, moon, and stars, fish, birds. And then on the first part of the sixth day, he created the animals. All this before man came into existence. And then it's interesting to notice how God created man. By the way, this is taking place on the second half of the sixth day. 
the creation of man. God takes dust of the ground. He makes Adam out of the dust of the ground. He forms him. And then he tells Adam, go name the animals. And so Adam goes and names the animals. And there was a special purpose in this, if you read Genesis. See, God knew that as Adam was naming the animals, he was going to find that each one had a mate. And he was going to feel lonely, interestingly enough. And that's exactly what happened. As Adam is naming the animals, he sees that every giraffe has a giraffus. Every elephant has an elephantus. Every cow has a bull. And so on. And he says, but what about me? There's no helper like me. And so now God says something really strange. After every day of creation, God had said, it was good. It's good. It's good. But now, he looks and he says, it is not good. There was something in creation week, even before sin, that was not good. So he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I'm going to create marriage. And so what he does, he creates the woman out of the man and brings the woman to the man. So I want you to notice the sequence. You have the creation of everything that's in the world, including the birds, the fish, the animals. Then man is created. Then the woman is created for man, for fellowship with man. And then the very last event of the sixth day is God calls, Jesus Christ calls Adam and Eve, and he says, now Adam, you stand right here, Eve, I'm dramatizing for effect. Adam, you stand right here, Eve, you stand right here. And then God says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let no man cast asunder. I declare you, man and wife. And so now God created marriage. Is marriage a creation institution? Is it part of God's original plan? Yes, but now listen up to what I'm going to say. Immediately after God married Adam and Eve and they were in fellowship, and God says, everything that I made is for you. It's my gift to you. The whole world and everything in it, now you're going to have sovereignty. You're going to have dominion over all that. But immediately after God marries them, we find that God institutes the Sabbath. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let's actually, let's start at chapter 1 and verse 31 and then move into chapter 2. It says in chapter 1 and verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Let me ask you, who had made all of these beautiful, wonderful things? Jesus. Was it necessary that Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve remember where all of this came from? What could keep fresh in their mind the fact that they were made for each other, but they were also both made for God? It's interesting, the first day that Adam and Eve spend on earth is not a day of work, it's a day of rest. And who are they resting with? With God, with Jesus. You say, now come on, pastor, is that what the Bible says? Yes, it says God rested. God blessed. God sanctified. Notice chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he has done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So what does God do? He rests. Did he rest by himself? No. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. And so it must be that not only God rested, but who rested with God? Man, Adam and Eve, as part of God's original plan. Now I want you to notice the beauty of this. Marriage is not a biangle, marriage is a triangle. On the sixth day, God makes marriage, Adam and Eve, and he says, 
I made you for one another. But on the seventh day, he says, come and rest with me. I really made both of you for me. And every Sabbath from now on, we're going to meet in the garden. And you're going to look at the world, and you're going to look at one another, and you're going to say, how marvelous God is. Look at everything he's made, everything that he has given us. What a wonderful God you are. Do you know why so many marriages fail today? It's because they are marriages of two instead of marriages of three. The Sabbath is an integral part of marriage. Because the last act on the sixth day is for God to marry Adam and Eve. And then he says, come now. Today, which I believe it was at sundown, we're going to notice in our study, in our next lecture, when the Sabbath begins, but God says, now what I want you to do, I want you to spend the whole day fellowshipping with me. We'll make it a threesome. What do you think Adam said? Oh, come on, Lord. I've got so many things to do. How is it that you give me this yoke of bondage? I can imagine Adam saying, Lord, you mean to say we're only going to be able to spend one day together a week? Lord, I'd like to spend every day. God says, you know, i got things to do. But I will come and I'll spend the Sabbath with you. And so you have the family on the Sabbath spending this beautiful day with their creator, with God. The Sabbath is an integral part of marriage. And I find it ironic, and I'll share this with you. I find it very ironic that Christians today are attacking homosexuality and lesbianism. And I say, yeah, you need to attack those things because they're not biblical. But the reason why they're doing it, you ask. Now, why do you say that a man and a man should not get married? Why do you say that a woman and a woman should not get married? Well, because God in the beginning made male and female, and he said that a male and a female should get married. And then I ask him, and what about the Sabbath? Did God make that at the beginning too? Are you with me? And they say, well, you know, marriage applies, but the Sabbath doesn't. Why? Why can you pick and choose one and not the other? We're going to find in our next two lectures that a tremendous tradition has entered the Christian church. And most Christians believe that this is gospel truth. You say, this can't, this can't be possible, it can't happen. How many people in the days of Jesus were more faithful to, to, to tradition than they were to the word of God? Almost everyone was on the wrong side. We're going to notice as we continue studying this seminar. The majority does not necessarily mean that it's true or that it's right. The only foundation where we can be secure and sure is the foundation of the holy, inerrant, infallible, trustworthy word of God. On that we must stand. So help us God. Now let's go back and take a look at the Sabbath of the Pharisees. And uh, we'll continue this on Saturday night. Would you like to continue some of this on Saturday night? Now I want you to notice some miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath. Do you know it's interesting when you look at the miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath, he was doing it in the Pharisees' face. He was saying, in your face. And I'm serious. And listen up. I'm going to read some, some passages from this book here. It's called Code of Jewish Law. Now, when the lives of people were in danger on the Sabbath, measures could be taken to save their lives, according to Jewish tradition. Let me read you, for example, from Mishnah Yoma, which is a Jewish source from that time, chapter 8 and verse 6. This is what it says. Whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. In other words, life is more important than the Sabbath. When life is on danger in the Sabbath, do everything possible to save it. Now that's interesting. But you know the miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath were not emergencies. 
In no case was life in danger. They were chronic diseases. It would have meant nothing for Jesus to wait until after sundown to heal these people. For example, a woman who had been bent over for 18 years. What difference would it have made to wait a few hours? A man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. A man who had been blind from birth. A man who had a withered hand. Is that a deathly disease? No. He had that withered hand probably since the time that he was born. A man who suffered of the dropsy, which is an excessive retention of water in the tissues, which causes great pain. But it's not a matter of life and death. And yet Jesus made it a specific point to do his miracles of healing in chronic cases on the Sabbath. And do you know the reason why? There are many people that think it's because Jesus was showing that we can break the Sabbath. But you read all these stories, you'll discover that it was not because Jesus wanted to teach people that you can break the Sabbath. It's because the Lord Jesus wanted to restore the Sabbath to its true and proper meaning. He wanted to exalt the Sabbath to the place where God had established it. You see, after the Babylonian captivity, which took place about 500 and some years before Christ, the Jewish rabbi said, we're never going to go through this again because it was a devastating experience for the Jews. The Babylonian captivity was terrible. I mean, when the city was surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar, the book of Lamentations says that the mothers ate their children. They were so hungry. It was that bad. And the prophets, Jeremiah and other prophets said, the reason why is because you have disobeyed the covenant. You have disobeyed the law of God. So after the captivity, when they went back to their land, the Jewish leader said, never again is this going to happen. We are going to make it impossible for, fe for people to disobey God's law. And so they built a wall around the law. A wall of all kinds of traditions to protect the Sabbath from being broken. Let me give you some illustrations. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 13 that we are not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. And of course it's talking about merchants who are carrying their wares and bringing them to the market on Sabbath. But in the times of Christ, the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees said that if you wore a wooden leg, you would have to take your wooden leg off on the Sabbath because that was bearing a burden. They said if a woman had a pin in her dress, she had to take out the pin because carrying a pin was carrying a burden on the Sabbath. They said if you had to jump over a brook, you shouldn't even actually do it because if you fall in the water and you get your pants wet, you might fall into the terrible sin of ringing. A woman could not look in a mirror on Sabbath because she might find a gray hair and she would be guilty of the sin of plucking. These are all actual laws. Folks, we can understand why Jesus said, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, in the days of Isaiah, you think this idea of Jesus saying, I'm tired of your Sabbaths, I'm tired of your sacrifices, you think that's only from the times of Jesus. Read Isaiah 1. There God says to Israel, I'm tired of your new moons, I'm tired of your sacrifices, I'm tired of your Sabbaths. Because your heart is wrong. You have this beautiful facade of piety, but your heart is wrong. None of it is acceptable. It's hypocrisy. And that's already in the Old Testament. Allow me to read you some of these laws. I kind of snicker. This is from the book Code of Jewish Law, which is a compilation of all those laws and rituals. By the way, there were 1,521 of them to protect the Sabbath from being broken. Let me ask you, what is it that Jesus attacked? Did he attack the Sabbath commandment or did he attack the wall? He attacked the wall. But Christians, you say, I, they say, I don't want anything to do with that Jewish Sabbath. Well, I don't either. Because the Sabbath of the rabbis is not the Sabbath of the Lord. The Sabbath of the rabbis is a false Sabbath. It is a counterfeit Sabbath. Because it is a Sabbath that is based on human traditions and not on the word of God. 
You see, Jesus was not getting rid of the day. He was getting rid of the wrong way. Some people wonder, why didn't Jesus give a direct command in the Gospels? Keep the Sabbath. Why would he have to? Everybody was keeping it. The Pharisees would be saying, what is this man talking about? Keep the Sabbath. Doesn't he know that we keep it to the very letter? To the very dot? So the reason why Jesus performs these miracles, he doesn't have to restore the Sabbath because they're keeping the Sabbath. What he has to do is restore the Sabbath to its true and proper meaning. Raise your hand if you're understanding what I'm saying. Yet the Christian world has fallen into the error of saying, I don't want anything to do with the Sabbath. That was for the Jews because they're looking at the Sabbath through the eyes of the Pharisees instead of looking at the Sabbath through the eyes of Jesus. Allow me to read you here some statements. Here's one of those 1,521. It is forbidden to open a door or a window opposite a burning candle, lest the flame be extinguished. But one may close the window or the door. It is forbidden to open or to close the door of an oven in which a fire is burning, for by so doing, one either increases or decreases the fire. Here's another interesting one. Wet mud on a garment may be scraped off with a fingernail or with a knife, but not when it is dry, for it is then equivalent to the act of grinding. You understand a little bit what Jesus is dealing with here. He's restoring the Sabbath, the creation Sabbath, the blessed experience of man and woman meeting with Jesus on the holy day. It's ironic, folks, that Jesus was the creator of the Sabbath, and those who claim to keep the Sabbath are looking to destroy the one who created the Sabbath. And on Sabbath. Notice another one. Just as it is forbidden to write on the Sabbath, so it is forbidden to erase any writing. Here's another one. It is forbidden to remove or to reset doors or windows on the Sabbath. Even when they hang on iron hinges and are easily removed or reset, one who re resets them is guilty of construction, and one who removes them is guilty of demolition. It even went so far, folks. You know, in Israel, there's this particular breed of sheep. They have very heavy tails that drag along the ground. And of course, when they drag along the ground, their tail bleeds. And so what, what they would do is they would put a board under the tail so that as the sheep moved, the, it would drag the, the board underneath the tail, and the tail wouldn't bleed. But you know what they would do on the Sabbath? They would remove the board, lest a sheep be bearing a burden on Sabbath. And you might think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. I'm reading from the code of Jewish law itself. Maybe one more. And our time is just about up, so we're going to have to pick up where we left off next time. We may not cover a barrel with a cloth. If the barrel is not entirely full, and there is an empty space of a hand breadth, that is four inches, between the beverage and the cover, because by covering it, we are making a tent. But we may do so by leaving a little of the opening uncovered. Imagine having to live this way. Every movement, every thought, everything you do. Am I breaking it? Am I breaking it? Am I breaking it? A day of misery. A day of rules and regulations imposed from outside but not coming from the heart, coming from inside. Now let's go quickly here to Mark chapter 3, because I want to finish this. Let's go to Mark chapter 3 and verse 1 very quickly, and we'll deal with a few more of Jesus' miracles in our next lecture on Saturday night. By the way, did Jesus break the Sabbath? Listen, if he broke the Sabbath, he's a sinner, because, because sin is transgression of the law. And by the way, if you say that Jesus broke the Sabbath, you're on the side of the Pharisees, because that's exactly what the Pharisees said. See, as Christians, we need to think. We need to read the scripture for ourselves. 
We can't go by tradition. You know the reason why most everybody rejected Jesus? is because they followed the tradition of the religious leaders. Instead of going and studying the word for themselves. So it says in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Mark, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Chronic? Chronic? Life and death? If Jesus waits till sundown, this man is going to die. No. And now notice, and they watched him closely. Okay, to spy on Sabbath. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. No problem with criticizing and accusing on Sabbath, folks. But to heal someone and give them joy and happiness, mortal sin. Verse 3. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. He's going to make a case out of this where everybody can see. He's in their face. He says, come here. And so he comes out. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now they're up a creek without a paddle. Let me tell you why. Because if they say that it's okay on the Sabbath, it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath, the people would say, boy, these guys are sure merciless, aren't they? But if they say it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, they would be undermining their own traditions and they would lose their authority. And so it says, they kept quiet. So the question is, is it lawful? And by the way, let's go over to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 12 very quickly. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 12. The question is, is it lawful? Some people say Jesus broke the Sabbath. Not so. Matthew 12, 12 has the parallel passage. It's describing the same experience. And it says in verse 12, at the conclusion of this story, of how much more value, Jesus speaking, then is a man than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Did Jesus break the law by doing this on Sabbath? No. He says it is lawful to do good. So there's no issue up here of whether Jesus is wanting to change the day of worship or whether he wants to get rid of the Sabbath. No. He says what I have said is lawful. Back to Mark chapter 3. When he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Listen. The life of this man wasn't in danger. So why does he say save life or to kill? Because he knows that in the hearts of those people, they want to kill him. We're going to notice it in a minute. Verse 5. So when he had looked around at them with anger. This is the only time in the whole Bible where Jesus is spoken of as having anger. And by the way, it's righteous indignation. Do you know what righteous indignation is? And by the way, his indignation is tempered with grief. You know, he, he, he has righteous indignation, but he's also grieved. He's filled with pain. Notice. So when he had looked around at them with anger... Being grieved by what? Oh, the same problem again. They're measuring up to the law, but their, hard, their hearts are as hard of stone. Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the, the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. What do you think the Sabbath came to mean to this man after this experience? Ah, the day of my restoration, the day when he created my hand, the day of my redemption, the day when I was restored. Isn't that the meaning of the Sabbath? Yes. And then notice what happens on the Sabbath, verse 6. Then the Pharisees, and by the way, if you read Luke 6, verse 11, it says that they went out of their minds with anger. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Folks, it's a sin to heal on Sabbath, but you can plot to kill on Sabbath. That's what Jesus was dealing with. He wasn't getting rid of the Sabbath. He was getting rid of the wall of traditions that they had created they had totally twisted the meaning of the Sabbath. Instead of being a time of fellowship with Jesus, it had become a way of measuring up and earning your salvation and earning brownie points and having everybody look at you. But that's not the meaning of the Sabbath. The meaning of the Sabbath is fellowship with the Creator, Jesus Christ. Now in our next lecture, we're going to talk a little bit more about 
the miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath. We're going to notice that the Sabbath was a day to, of relief from stress. But the Pharisees made it a day to increase your stress. It was a day to rest in Jesus. And you know what the sad thing is? The Christian world and the Jewish nation both fall into the same error. Because the Pharisees wanted the Sabbath, but they didn't want the Lord. But the Christian world wants the Lord, but they don't want the Sabbath. But God wants a people who, who love the Lord and the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is our time with our beloved Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've studied about Jesus, the great model teacher. We've discovered that far from eliminating the law, he magnified it and made it honorable. He restored it to its true meaning. The sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the fifth commandment, the fourth commandment, and other commandments. He restored to their true meaning, getting rid of the traditions that have been piled on these commandments. Lord, the Christian world has no problems with the seventh, the fifth, sixth. They don't see the importance of the fourth, importance of the fourth. I ask, Lord, that you will remove the veil and help people to see the beauty of your Sabbath as a day of fellowship with the Creator and with our beloved Redeemer because you have given it to us to spend time with you. Thank you for this beautiful gift. And we thank you for having been with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.